tyrants, fancy dress political campaigning, a juicy building contract and Spartans. Join me as I talk about how democracy took hold in archaic Athens on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome, my name's Neil and in this episode I'm unravelling how the political landscape in Athens changed immensely in the 6th century BC and how it ended up with a new political system there which it ultimately became famous for. I'm going to give an overview of what that was exactly but this episode will be largely about the people and situations before. Trust me when I say that some of them actually well, I'm not going to spoil it. Before I start, the standard spiel of where you can find me. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, I'm at AncientBlogger. And it's all history content, by the way. I've also got a website, AncientBlogger.com, and here you'll find notes for this episode. This will be formed of a reading list for the sources used, a transcription of the episode, and some maps and images, as well as any sort of supporting information which will help you get a bit more out of it. There's a couple of my other podcasts that I've mentioned in the course of this episode there, which, you know, you might want to have a, a bit of a listen to. Oh, and by the way, this podcast has its own Twitter as well. It's at Hound Ancient. Now, if there's a chance you can leave a review, that would be fab. After all, this is a hobby. I don't have a marketing budget. So reviews and recommends are all I have. And trust me, they do make a difference. I've had people get back to me saying that, I found your podcast and I say, okay, thank you. How? And they say, oh, because it came up as a suggested one. And that applies sometimes to Spotify, which now apparently you can actually leave a review or comments on specific episodes. So again, if you get the chance to do that, it would really help. To all new listeners, I hope you enjoy what you're about to listen to. And to all the returning listeners, thanks. I really appreciate you coming back for more punishment, or at least a few puns. Just before we start then, there are a couple of caveats. The first is that the period I'm covering is the 6th century BC. So all dates are BC, and I normally say BC, but you know, just in case. The second point is that I'll be talking about citizens and political participation. Citizens in Athens meant men over a certain age. So when I talk about citizens, that's who I'm referring to. And you probably know that already, but just in case. With that covered then, I can begin. In 508 BC, Athens had a democracy of sorts in place. This itself has been debated, and I'll pick up on that later on. But it didn't appear out of nowhere. A fascinating range of events had led up to its emergence and adoption. Some more incidental and others we can, well, tie a bit more closely to it. What I'm going to do, though, is turn the clock back. Back to the beginning of the 6th century BC, and to a crisis shaking Athens. The crisis in question related to a widening gap between the rich and the poor, particularly the poor tenant farmers. The nobles who owned the land were making ever more harsh demands of them, and many of those tenant farmers, or even ones who owned small lots of land, were finding themselves in debt, and this had a couple of very nasty outcomes. The first was something called debt slavery, where you existed to work off any debt you'd accrued. Though a temporary situation, you might envisage one where it became nearly impossible to work yourself out of what was, effectively, an economic form of slavery. You were trapped. And the second was literal slavery. And that's because a creditor could sell you or members of your family, usually abroad, as slaves. 
The idea that if you were a citizen of a city-state such as Athens, that you could not end up a slave, well, that wasn't the case. In fact, freeborn people ending up as slaves was more common than you might think. And if you've listened to my episode on piracy, you'll know exactly what I mean. With that said, the nobles weren't entirely comfortable with this situation either. Perhaps they feared mass civil unrest or the outbreak of tyranny. Something needed to be done, and in 594 BC, the Athenians elected a figure called Solon to the position of Archon to sort it all out. Solon is an intriguing character, a noble born in Athens who took up trading and travel. He was a notable poet, and in fact, we know of his political contributions because he referred to them in his poetry. The reforms he put in place became famous in antiquity, though it's not always clear if he enacted all of them or whether some were later credited to him. These reforms touched upon everything across the legal, political and the social, even to the private. According to Plutarch, albeit writing centuries later, the new husband of an heiress was required to, well, shall we say, perform his duties at least three times a month. But back to the crisis, there were two main reforms which are of particular relevance here. The first involved the creation of four classes, which now defined a citizen's status by their wealth, and this was linked to their agricultural output. The fantastically named Pentacosiomedimnoi were at the top, with the Hippies second and the Zugatai third. At the bottom was a class called the Thetes. These would have probably formed the majority of the Athenians living in Athens and Attica, which was the region in which Athens sat. In fact, it's an important point to remember, because although I say Athens and Athenians, we're really talking about the region of Attica, because it's here where these changes manifested as well. The majority of the population lived outside of Athens, and in those small towns and villages around Attica. These four classes gave differing levels of access and participation to the new political organs Solon put in place, though I should add, it's not entirely clear what these new political organs were but you get the idea. It seems that the top political offices were reserved for the two wealthiest classes, with the Zugatai, the third class, given some access to the minor offices. The only class who didn't have any access to the offices were the Thetes, but they got some choice concessions. It seems that they could vote in an assembly, they also got access to a court where they could appeal decisions. But they also got a huge break, and it was called the Cisakthia, or shaking off the burdens. This was a cancellation of all debts. And for a moment, just think about that, perhaps even try and imagine it now. And in addition, Solon banned the practice of debt slavery. Both the poor and the rich got something of what they wanted, but not as much as they'd hoped. The nobles maintained their grip on power through the offices of state and running the main council, but the poor now had an economic freedom and a sliver of political participation. However, this wasn't enough, and like any good mediator, Solon was not popular in Athens with either side. After his reforms, he left Athens for ten years, and it's been argued that this was to ensure he couldn't affect or take advantage of the situation there, but also perhaps because he was very good at reading the room. What Solon had created was a timocracy, not a democracy. A timocracy is a type of government where only property owners could participate, or where access is through owning property. So, why have I mentioned it at all? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first is that this event is often linked to the events much later on. They also broke the control the nobles had on power. True, a rich person was often a noble, 
but it allowed the door to political power to be opened by a fraction. Because in theory, someone born outside the nobility could amass wealth and gain access they would never have previously had. There are some elements of Solon's reforms which are built upon or referenced when democracy was later established. Many of his reforms, particularly the legal ones, were kept well into the period when Athens had its democracy. And looking back, Solon's actions didn't result in a democracy, but they enabled the changes which would lead to it, particularly the concept of everyone having some involvement, the basic concept of participation. And it's possible that Solon's big idea of wider participation was something in the wind at the time, because elsewhere in Greece, there's evidence of participation in politics. A good example of this can be seen on a stele from Chios, which has a reference on it to a council where people could have their say. What next then for Athens after Solon had gone? Well, his structure had stayed in place, and though these resolved the issues, they didn't prevent a type of situation which occurred and would come to dominate much of the remaining century in Athens. This was a tyrant seizing control. Tyrants were a political feature of ancient Greece. What made a tyrant wasn't always easy to define, as we in the modern period experience the word as a pejorative. Don't like your boss, or someone in power, or perhaps even a member of your family. Yep, they're a tyrant. But the actual definition of a tyrant was a slippery one in the archaic period. The general consensus was that they were someone who seized power in a city-state, normally through non-standard means, often a coup or some sort of violent uprising, and then they ruled the city-state in the manner of a king, with no checks or balances. This all sounds bad stuff, but tyrants could do plenty of good things. Polycrates at Samos raised the island's profile immeasurably and improved the city with works. Likewise, the tyrant we'll hear about at Athens was most likely very popular amongst the common man because he invested a lot into raising Athens up and making it a popular place. Of course, there could be tyrants who behaved badly towards their people, but usually the type of person who'd have the biggest gripe with a tyrant would be a fellow noble. If you weren't from the tyrant's family, it could mean at best being denied the power you'd once had, or at worst, you could lose everything. In a way, tyrant as a bad thing was subjective, and perhaps that's why Aristotle didn't refer to a ruler called Pittacus as a tyrant, but the poet Alcius did. And perhaps the reason why Alcius called him that was because Alcius was one of those political rivals who lost out when Pittacus seized power. Around the 560s, factions had started to form at Athens, each greedily eyeing the other up. The three main contenders for power were Megacles, Pisistratus, and Lycurgus. And I should clarify, this is not the Lycurgus associated with Sparta. And in fact, you can pretty much forget about him. The more interesting were Megacles and Pisistratus. Megacles was from an infamous family, the Alcmeonids. These would be part of the nobles for some time, but many years earlier, around 632 BC, they'd behaved in a very unnoble way. A group had made a power grab in Athens, failed, and sought sanctuary in a temple, and this was a greed convention. This was a standard in ancient Greece. Anyone could seek sanctuary, but they couldn't be removed by force, and to do so was a big taboo. The Alcmeonids didn't remove the party involved. They didn't forcibly take anyone away from the sanctuary. In fact, negotiations had resulted in a truce, with that group leaving Athens. However, as they left, members of that family pounced and killed them. This act was to leave a stain on the family, one which wouldn't be forgotten and which will come up later in this episode. 
Pisistratus was from a similarly noble family, but without the stain, though, as you'll hear, he didn't exactly play clean. In 561 BC, he made his play for power, and I choose the word play because Pisistratus was all about performance. He'd already been a successful general and was popular with the masses, but one day, a wounded and beaten Pisistratus drove his chariot into the Agora at Athens. He pointed to the cuts and bruises on his body, and told the astonished crowd that he'd been ambushed by his political rivals and been lucky to escape alive. What he needed was a bodyguard which could keep him safe, and, you know, certainly not used for any, say, nefarious activities. The appeal worked, and he was given a bodyguard. You can guess the rest. Using these men, armed with clubs, a detail I'll come to in a moment, Pisistratus seized power. This famous account given by Herodotus is a curious one, It's more than plausible that it acts as a sort of summary. There may have been a number of small and complex political moves which went on, but a tale such as this is just a better story and one which sticks in the mind. And of course it could have happened, but perhaps there was more to it than this. Pisistratus seemed popular with the masses, as I mentioned, so a small band of armed men was really all that was required, as it was the rival nobles who needed to be gently persuaded as to him being in charge. There's also an interesting comment on the weapons the bodyguards wielded. Why clubs? Why not spears? It's possible that this was symbolic, with Hercules or Heracles famous for wielding a club. The hero used his as he pacified and brought order to the world of myth, so perhaps this was a nice piece of PR. The bodyguards aren't here to hurt anyone, just bring an order. Impressive though it was, the rule of Pisistratus didn't last long, at least initially. Around 556 BC, he was driven from Athens, but he soon returned. His political opponents may have had a common enemy in him, but now they fell about each other until one had a great idea. The great idea belonged to Megacles, who I spoke of earlier. Perhaps realising that the Athenian politics was just too fractured, he suggested an alliance with Pisistratus. The cost of such an alliance was that Pisistratus would marry his daughter, and so it was agreed. All that was left was the right type of political campaign, or what we might call rebranding. This involved a very tall woman called Phi. Pisistratus dressed her as the goddess Athena, and she drove around Attica in a chariot, saying how Pisistratus was bringing her back to Athens, a sort of make Athens great again. And it worked. Herodotus perhaps unfairly commented that the Athenians were stupid to believe this, but perhaps he missed the nuance of it all. Pisistratus knew it was the poor who he needed to appeal to, and he did exactly that. So did a bunch of poor farmers in a village believe this woman was really Athena? Ah, Probably not. But did they get the message that here was someone who would look out for them and give them some civic pride? Yeah, they probably did. The political marriage between Pisistratus and the daughter of Megacles didn't go well. The main issue was that Pisistratus didn't want children with someone from the Alcmeonid family, what with their stained reputation and all. Pisistratus was again driven from Athens, but again returned, this time in 546 BC and after a battle. No political gimmicks this time. Pisistratus ruled until 527 BC, and his time in power, including those shorter instances, was notable for what he did and didn't do. He certainly repaid the poor for backing him, in some instances offering loans, but he also set about raising the profile of Athens, a great example being the establishment of the Panathenaic Games. This was Athens' answer to the Pan-Hellenic Games, which featured at Olympia, Delphi, Corinth and Nemea. They were hugely popular, people travelled from all over Greece to attend them. 
so why shouldn't Athens have its own games? Naturally, the games at Athens were curated to promote the city and its people as much as it could. It would also look inwards and work to further embody a sense of city pride. For example, where the Panhellenic Games at events opened to all Greeks, some of the events of the Panathenaic Games were restricted to Athenians alone. The games at Athens were also chromatic, meaning that there was monetary value in the prizes. You didn't win fame and a wreath, you won amphorae of olive oil, which was very valuable. It was a festival soaked in pomp and ceremony relating to Athens, and it was a huge PR win. Elsewhere, he built new buildings and encouraged the arts. The poor farmers had those loans and were encouraged to grow olives as part of a wider policy of exporting olive oil. All of this moves to a point I made earlier about tyrants being good for city-states, at least in some aspects. The average poor Athenian had a new experience in the city, and a leader who seemingly had their interests as well as the cities as his driving belief. Of course, the nobles, albeit those outside his family or not in his immediate circle, had less, but perhaps they were also happy to sit on the sidelines for a bit. What's notable is what he didn't do. There's no evidence that Pisistratus changed the political structure. He kept it. To be fair, he staffed his followers in key positions, thus shoring himself up. He may have acted the king, but he was clever enough to make it look as if he wasn't. In 527 BC, Pisistratus died, and his elder son Hippias took over, and things ticked along until 514 BC, when an assassination changed everything. It wasn't Hippias who was assassinated, but his brother Hipparchus. The rationale behind the assassination is a tale in itself, which I'll get to at the end of the episode, because it's a great example of history being rewritten more or less at the time. But the immediate effect was that it caused Hippias to become the sort of tyrant which gave tyrants a bad name. Who would save Athens then from this increasingly unstable ruler? Perhaps, who you might not think, it was the Spartans. It wasn't out of the goodness of their warm, laconic hearts that the Spartans, led by their king Cleomenes, drove Hippias from Athens. The exact reason isn't clear, but Herodotus recorded that whenever a Spartan visited the oracle at Delphi, the response would be for them to set Athens free. This messaging stuck fast with Sparta, which was notoriously pious. In 510 BC, King Cleomenes entered Athens and besieged Hippias, who was holding out on the Acropolis. Eventually, a truce was agreed and Hippias and his family left for Sigium in what is modern-day Turkey. But he wasn't completely out of the picture, though, and we'll hear more of him later. With Hippias gone, we meet an individual credited with the setup of democracy a few years later, the famous Cleisthenes. He was the son of Megacles, who you'll remember from earlier. Exactly how Megacles and the Alcmeonids had fared during the return of Pisistratus is debated, Herodotus thought the entire family had been exiled, except an inscription has been found which points to Cleisthenes being an archon at Athens. Perhaps the Alcmeonids had settled for their place in Athens, but they'd also not given up on their political ambitions. It had been Cleisthenes who'd won a building contract at Delphi for a temple. Rather than simply fulfil the contract, the job was done above and beyond. But though the specifics hadn't demanded it, the finest and most expensive marble was used, again, despite not being charged for. Surely it was just a coincidence, then, that the very place whispering demands in Spartan ears to remove Hippias from Athens was in receipt of a huge favour from Cleisthenes, whose family, remember, would benefit from such an event. 
It certainly didn't escape the likes of Herodotus, who called the rebuilding of the temple at Delphi by Chysnes an outright bribe. With Hippias gone, you may have thought that the road was open for Chysnes to take control of Athens, except, as ever in Athenian politics, there's always a rival. In this case, it was a man called Isagoras. Like Chysnes, he was a fellow noble, and the two faced off against each other with their respective supporters. The issue was that neither had enough support to secure an overwhelming political victory. That was until Cleisthenes brought the poor onto his side. And by poor we might think of the Thetes, or certainly the lower two classes. For some reason, these hadn't been given much attention. And by appealing to them, Cleisthenes now had the bulk of support there. As Cleisthenes had tipped the balance with this new base, it fell to Isagoras to return the favour, and he did this by turning to Sparta. In fairness, this wasn't the worst idea. After all, Sparta would certainly be happy with a friend in a place such as Athens, and they'd just removed a tyrant from there. In 508 BC, Sparta again entered Athens, but this time to support Isagoras. Cleisthenes and his supporters fled, and Isagoras set his mind to a brutal change of things. The council? Well, that had to go, and instead 300 of his closest supporters would suffice in its place, except Athens resisted. The assembly was furious, and soon civil revolt broke out. The outcome was Isagoras and the small Spartan force retreating to the Acropolis, and now they were under siege. Eventually, a truce was achieved with Isagoras, and the Spartans allowed to leave. Cleisthenes now returned with what amounted to a political blank check. Though Athens now celebrated, it was also in grave danger. Sparta was now technically at war with Athens, and the latter searched round for any allies, and eventually they found a backer who might help them to balance things, at least in terms of finance. This was the Persians. OK, I understand that you might want to have a bit of a sit-down now and perhaps a cup of tea. In a short time, you've heard that Sparta helped Athens be rid of a tyrant, and now Athens was in league with Persia. We think of this as something laughable, but at the time it made sense. Athens must have been seen as ripe for the plucking, and Persia wasn't the enemy it was to later become. Ironically, this request for aid from Persia was going to have consequences down the line for Athens, and I'll mention this at the end of the episode. So, what did Cleisthenes do? What were his reforms, and were they really that democratic? I'll start with the first question. One of his most substantial pieces of work had probably already happened, and Herodotus links it with him winning over the Thetes, or bringing the poor onto his side when tipping the balance against Isagoras. It was a complete social upheaval, and even changed the way people refer to themselves. It was the establishment of the Ten Tribes. Up until this point, there had been four tribes in Athens, but Cleisthenes, and presumably his advisers, dismantled these, and in their place were now ten tribes, each named after a hero. These tribes were formed of tritiis, or thirds, as there were three tritiis in each tribe, and a tritii was formed of a collection of deems. A deem was a small political and geographical area. Think of it as a neighbourhood, or a parish, or a district. There were around 139 of them, give or take a few in Attica. Deems were the new identifier. You registered the birth of a boy in your deem. A deem had its own elected representative, a demarcos, and a deem, not your father's name, became how you referred to yourself. You're no longer Neil, son of Bernie, you are Neil of the deem of Taring. 
but deems differed in size and composition. A deem in the agricultural farmlands of Attica might be very different from one on the coast. For example, the coastal deem may have had more lower-class workers, whereas the agricultural deem might have had a few rich landowners. The problem was ensuring that each tribe was a mix of deems from all over Attica, rather than one tribe being all coastal deems, for example. The solution was simple and brilliant. Cleisthenes carved Attica into three main areas, the coast, the city and the inland. Deems from each area were grouped into trities or thirds, and then these were combined to form a tribe. Each of the new ten tribes had a trity of deems from the coast, a trity of deems from the inland, and a trity of deems from the city. As well as balancing out each tribe, this broke down the traditional power bases which clans had used in the past. There had been instances of factions building support from a particular region. That faction could then use the support for political means. But now, the deem bordering on yours could be part of a different tribe. It immediately prevented this type of thing happening again. Factions could no longer rely on a geographical region for support, as they'd done in the past. Loyalty was now to your deem, your treaty, your tribe, and above all, Athens. Each tribe elected a general. It also elected, by lot I should add, 50 members to serve for a year on the new Council of 500. This was a body which drafted legislature and policy. This was then voted for by the Assembly, which any citizen could attend. They literally sat on a hill called the Penix and voted with a show of hands. It's thought it could accommodate up to 6,000 people, which makes its name, which meant squeezed together, quite appropriate. 6,000 might not sound a lot. Well, perhaps not until you consider the population of Attica at this time. It's notoriously difficult to anything close to an exact figure, but estimates for the entire population of Attica hover around the 250,000 mark. But hold on, you might say. 6,000 doesn't match well here. But that 250,000 was everyone. It was men, women, children and slaves. And remember, not everyone could vote. The number of adult citizen males is estimated at 30,000. These, after all, were the participants in the new system, so it doesn't sound like a bad ratio. And remember, most would have lived outside of Athens, so perhaps only coming in to vote on occasion. Other reforms included the reorganisation of the law courts where jurors were paid, and this was very popular. However, not all concessions to the masses had been granted. This, after all, was a balancing act. The poorest class, the Thetes, still didn't have access to political office. There was also the Areopagus, a court which was still the reserve of the nobles. And the classification by wealth thing, you know, those four classes, that was still in place. I should note that for some scholars, what Cleisthenes had put in place still felt short of what was a real democracy. And there were changes in the middle of the 5th century BC which favoured the poor even further and built on these. However, what Cleisthenes had done was build upon elements established by Solon, there was also now much more participation, and the new tribes led to a new way of operating. So we've arrived at the famous reforms of Cleisthenes, but before I finish, I want to pick up on three points, two of which I mentioned earlier, the embassy to Persia and the assassination, but I'm going to start with the one I didn't mention, and one which has been commented as synchronising with democracy, and that was the development of Greek theatre. Exactly when Greek theatre came in is debated, and there's actually my episode on Greek theatre which covers this. Greek theatre has been argued as dovetailing with democracy, 
the two unlikely bedfellows. Before Greek theatre made its way to Athens, it was being performed in the deems outside of the city, and it was being performed in the spaces where debates were now being had. Usually, this was at the foot of a hill on a flat piece of ground, not the grandiose stone theatres you now see, but with people sitting on the ground, or at most, on wooden benches. Greek theatre early on was Greek tragedy, and Greek tragedy, as Professor Edith Hall noted, was about decisions. Much of Greek tragedy is characters debating a point. Professor Hall has also made an excellent suggestion that Greek tragedy could have been a sort of training exercise as well as an art form. The people watching in a rural deem were learning about how consequential decisions might be, and they would be flexing those newly built muscles in the assembly or in the council, or perhaps just in their deems as they debated on who to elect as Demarchos, or just generally what things were going on and what was important to them. The second point is that embassy to Persia. If it raised an eyebrow, then good. By agreeing to the symbolic gift of earth and water, Athens had essentially given its authority to Persia. And when a certain Hippias started pleading his case to Persia that he should be returned, they agreed. Athens' refusal on this point was part of what caused Persia to invade in 490 BC, the famous Battle of Marathon. In fact, Hippias was at Marathon. He survived it, but died shortly after. The Athenians used Marathon as a real win for democracy. In fact, you can listen about all of this on an episode I recorded with Dr. Sonia Nevin. The fact that democracy helped cause the Battle of Marathon in the first place is something of an irony. The third and last point relates to how Athens set about creating a myth about the founding of democracy. It centred on the assassination of Hipparchus, the brother of Hippias, at the Panathenaic Games in 514 BC. Two individuals were credited and celebrated for this, Stepforward, Harmodius and Aristogeiton. Neither survived the event with Harmodius killed on the spot and Aristogeiton shortly afterwards. For later Athens, these men, in fact they were lovers, embodied the noble action of killing a tyrant which paved the way for democracy and paying the ultimate price for it. The pair had a statue celebrating them in the Agora and even a hero cult. And in fact, there's a statue you can look at now called the Tyrannicides, which is a Roman copy. Their act became a byword for Athens and its new political structure. But upon closer examination, this story sort of falls apart. Leading the charge on this was Thucydides, who criticised his fellow Athenians for believing it in the first place. His version, and that of Herodotus, gave a very different account. True, the pair had killed Hipparchus, but he wasn't the tyrant, he was the tyrant's brother. The justification for the act wasn't an altruistic sense of freeing the people. This was a revenge killing amongst nobles, as Hipparchus had shamed a sister of Harmodius. There's irony here as well, because it was following this event that Hippias, the actual tyrant, started acting in the way we think of in the modern day. If anything, Harmodius and Aristogiton had created a tyrant in the modern sense. And for those of you with an ear for detail, this occurred in 514 BC, several years before the reforms of Cleisthenes. There's also one other thing the myth does. It completely removed the involvement of the Spartans, you know, the ones who actually drove Hippias from Athens. The reworking of this event into a sort of foundation myth for democracy had a number of benefits to it then. It was a great story showcasing just how dedicated Athenians were to be freed and avoided giving any credit to Sparta, which, in the 5th century BC, 
can only have been a good thing for them. And on that point, I come to the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've been waiting for a new episode for a while, apologies for the delay. Real life stuff has a habit of, you know, getting in the way. I'm sure you know what I mean. If you can leave a review or rating, that would be great. But more importantly, thanks for listening. Until next time, keep well and stay safe.